Have you ever been caught in a crowd and discovered it was the wrong crowd? Not what you were anticipating, not what you were expecting, and all of a sudden, instead of being in the flow of things, you were going against the grain. Mike and Letitia, Pastor Mike and Letitia in uh, 1997 moved to Berlin, Germany as uh, global workers with uh, Encompass World Partners. And that Christmas, New Year's, I had an opportunity to go over there and visit them. And that uh, New Year's Eve will go down as probably the most memorable, one of the most memorable New Year's Eve uh, that I can remember, particularly in my first uh, several decades of life. Well, it ended up being a situation where we had opportunity to go into the heart of Berlin and go to the Berliner Dome, a, a grand cathedral, and listen to a concert, uh, a presentation by some of the finest musicians of Handel's Messiah. And I was struck by a number of different things, not only the quality of the music and, and the majesty of the architecture, uh, but ultimately that these people who didn't know who Jesus were, uh, were singing uh, and exalting him uh, through their music uh, and the words of what had been sung and written. Impactful, impressive, an extraordinary opportunity. Well, on the way home, we met a different crowd. They weren't the concert-going crowd. They were the partying crowd. They were the crowd that was streaming in to celebrate the new year. And they had different plans than those of us who had been at the concert. We were dressed differently. We looked different. Uh, we had uh, you know, generally a younger crowd. And they were coming ready to rock and roll. They had backpacks full of all kinds of things uh, to make their enjoyment uh, as, as paramount as it possibly could have been, including all kinds of explosive bottle rockets and fireworks uh, and, 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 and the like. Now, here's the thing. They didn't wait till we were out of the way. And they didn't wait till midnight uh, to begin to uh, set off their fireworks. It was happening in the streets around us with bottle rockets flying left and right at ground level. It was in the, the subway stations and, and, and down the hallways. We could hear all of this excitement. We were in a different crowd all of a sudden. And it wasn't the crowd we were anticipating. You could say it was both thrilling and terrifying all at once. Certainly memorable. Well, we're going to be looking at Jesus and picking up our up-close-and-personal story uh, study uh, out of the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, and the life of Jesus. And we're going to find a, a series, uh, an example here today from our passage where Jesus was mixing with the wrong crowd, or so some would claim. And we'll pick up in Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 39. And we're going to walk this experience with him, and we're going to learn from him, and we're going to grow through that. So Luke chapter 5, 27 to 29, our hosts are working their way through the auditorium here this morning. If you don't have a Bible, they'd love to put one in your hand. You can just catch their attention. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, this is a gift to you. If you do own one and just don't have it with you, you can drop it off on the way out. They also have programs with them if you want to keep uh, that and take one so you can follow along and take notes along with that. Uh, capture their attention. Uh, and online, graceplayers.org slash program, you can follow along with what uh, we're talking about this morning. Well, Jesus, as we've been looking at in the last couple of weeks, has been out and about, and his ministry is gathering steam, and he's gaining notoriety and acclaim. He's been gathering and garnering a lot of interest as he goes from place to place, and he demonstrates miraculous signs and healings. He shows that he has power over evil spirits. He shows that he has power over sickness and disease by healing many. Last week, we looked at a study where he healed a man with leprosy, a man who was unclean, who was ostracized, who was removed from society, who you would never get near. But Jesus went to him and touched him physically touched him 
Because Jesus came not as one who would be defiled by disease and sickness, but one who was a healer, who was a cleansing agent. We also saw last week how Jesus healed a paralytic, how his friends and his faith brought him to a place where uh, even though Jesus was inaccessible because of the crowds, they climbed up on a roof, they, they opened up the roof, they dropped them down in the middle of the room, and Jesus, seeing their faith, says, friend, your sins are forgiven, which was not what anybody expected. They expected him to potentially heal him. And when he said, your sins are forgiven, there was an uproar and there was pushback. Who is this person who says you can forgive sins? But Jesus said, so that you know that I have the power to forgive sins, I'll say to you, young man, rise up and walk. And he got up and walked. So Jesus demonstrating power over evil spirits, over sickness and disease, also demonstrating power to forgive sins. And the crowds are amazed. And the buzz is crescendoing. And the Pharisees and religious leaders of the day, though, were on high alert. Because Jesus and his message and his methods were undermining their leading, their teaching, their authority, and their acclaim. And they felt threatened by it. And so they were on high alert. Who is this Jesus? What is he up to? We've got to stop him. Our text today, would you go ahead and stand with me? We're going to read through this today. Uh, Luke chapter 5, 27 through 39. And as you stand, we'll do that in honor of the reading of God's word. Uh, follow along in your scriptures or on the screen. And it's this, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. Thank you for honoring God's word in that way. You may have a seat. If you have your outlines there, you'll see our first point is that we run into something unexpected with Jesus. And it's this encounter that Jesus has with Levi in verses 27 through 32. And point A is about Jesus calling Levi. Jesus calls Levi. We find here in this situation that Jesus is far more concerned about the sin problem and the, than he is about the sickness problem that people encounter. So Jesus, moving about the crowds, is walking down the road, and he comes to this place, and he sees Levi, the tax collector, sitting at his booth. Levi is a name that maybe you've heard, but uh, you might be more familiar with Matthew. Levi is actually Matthew. 
And when we read the Gospel of Matthew in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're speaking of the same person. So Levi here is Matthew. And this is the first encounter that we have recorded in the Gospel of Luke between Jesus and Levi. So Levi's there. Levi's doing what Levi does. Levi's a tax collector. And he's sitting at his booth, extracting taxes and tariffs and tolls from his fellow countrymen on behalf of the occupying government of Rome. He's been hearing about Jesus. Certainly his life has been a mix of both good and bad. As a tax collector, he's in the upper crust of society from a financial standpoint. It's a, it's a wealthy occupation. But from a social relational standpoint, he's sold out his brothers and his countrymen uh, to be a pawn or vassal of Rome. He's a traitor in their eyes. He's an extortioner taking advantage of his brothers. And somehow deep in his heart, he knows. But he's seen this Jesus. He's heard of this Jesus. And as Jesus has moved about, he, he discovers that Jesus is coming his direction. I wonder what might have been going through his heart in that moment. Do I want to see him? Do I want him to see me? Is he coming close? Is he coming down this street? Is he coming my direction? And sure enough, Jesus does. And he sees Levi sitting at his tax collecting booth, doing what tax collectors do, extorting and stealing. As a traitor of the Jews on behalf of the government of Rome. This Thursday, Kate and I, my daughter Kate and I, got to go to an Ohio State Buckeye game, uh, a, girls, uh, a girls game. And as they do at these games, they've got the fan of the game. And they flash the camera around the audience, and everybody goes nuts, and they try to be the fan of the game. Well, the fan of the game happened to be sitting one row behind us, about three or four seats over. We could have probably given them a high five. And the camera stopped with them, and they were the fan of the game, and they got a $50 gift card to Meyer, and everybody was happy. Levi was not the fan of the game. The Jews hated him. He was riffraff. He was deplorable. He was an outcast. He has sold his soul and his countrymen out to the Romans. He was not the fan of the game. But Jesus and his camera stopped on Levi. And Levi sees Jesus' gaze and he sensed that that Jesus knew all about him. He knew what he was made of. He knew what he had done. He knew what he was doing. He knew how he had sold out his brothers. He knew how he was considered an outcast. And he knew that Jesus saw right through him and saw everything about him. And yet Jesus' word to Levi were, follow me. How could this be, Levi thought? He's, he wants me. He's inviting me. He's welcoming me to follow him. He knows everything about me, and he still says to me, follow me. And suddenly everything that had been uh, important to him, everything that he had pursued, and everything uh, that he had accomplished, and everything that he had valued, and everything that he had accumulated, it lost its importance. It melted away in comparison to this invitation from Jesus to follow him. 
You know, we've all been in that situation where we've found ourselves in an impulse purchase. You know, you're walking down the aisle at the grocery store or at, at Best Buy or wherever it is, and you see something where the deal is too good to be true. And you're like, yes! And you snarf it up, and you're like dancing off to the aisle to pay whatever it is that you're paying because you're like, this is 80% off. There's no way I can resist this. What a deal! Well, in some ways, that was Levi's joy. But the scriptures say here that he left everything. He got up, left everything, and followed him. The difference is that when we look at something, we see this incredible deal that we're like, I've got to get it. Because the price is so low, Levi follows Jesus even though the price was incredibly high. He left everything, the scriptures say. That's one thing if he would have just gotten up and said, hey, I'm going to take a half-day personal day. I'll be back and see you in the morning. But he didn't. For him to get up from his tax-collecting booth on behalf of the Romans meant that he was walking away from that and not having an opportunity to return to that. He was walking away from his livelihood, from his career, from his occupation, from his source of income to follow Jesus. He left his way of life. He left his income. Because the price to follow Jesus, even though it cost him everything, was worth it. Levi, in that moment, recognized that Jesus was inviting him to so much more. That he saw him for all that he was, and he still wanted him. And Levi was all in. Well, if Jesus is called a Levi, uh, as you might imagine, created quite a stir. They're like... What's he doing with that guy? Can you imagine all of his friends? Can you imagine all of the other Jews? Why is Jesus inviting this guy? This guy of all of them? Why him? But if the call of Levi began to cause a stir, what takes place next just ups the ante. Point B is the Pharisees question Jesus' associations, verses 29 through 30. Jesus just didn't hang out He just didn't hang out with the right people. And the stir that was beginning was beginning to accelerate. The Pharisees are questioning Jesus' association. Jesus, that's not the right type of person to be hanging out with. You don't do that, Jesus. If you're a religious leader, if you're a teacher, you don't hang out with those types. What are you doing? How could you do that? But what Levi does next creates an even bigger stir. There are a couple had-tos that Levi found himself in. The first was that Levi, the scriptures say, he threw a great banquet for Jesus at his house. Levi had to celebrate. Levi found himself compelled to celebrate. Jesus had invited him to follow. And Levi had to celebrate. And he threw a great banquet, not just a a little banquet, not just a medium-sized banquet, Not just an under-the-radar banquet, but a great banquet. I mean, this was an enormous banquet at his house. Can you imagine if you had this type of celebration at your house? I mean, all the the, the streets would be packed, and people would have to walk a couple, maybe a block or two to get to your house, and all the neighbors are looking out saying, what's going on around here in full view? This is in the daylight. This isn't under the shroud of darkness. This is a great banquet, and everyone can see, but but Levi had to celebrate because Jesus had done something in his life. Levi had known the dark night of his soul, the depth of his despair, the crushing weight of his sin. 
And he had found Jesus come to him, and he found that burden released. And Levi realized how much he had been forgiven by Jesus. As if he had taken a breath of air for the very first time. All that had constricted him and buried him and held him down had been broken free. We've all had those moments where the crushing weight of something's been released. But this is even more than that. It's when we get a medical result that we were hoping for, that we were afraid would go the other way. So we've got a, a big test or exam that we've been studying for, and it's, and it's taken hours and hours and hours, and it's very pivotal in our educational career. And we get to that test, and we finally take that test, and we walk out of that room knowing that we've done well. It's a job task that's been accomplished successfully that, that hung in the balance with incredible stakes. And you feel the relief of all of that pressure and tension that's been building for weeks and months or years. We've all felt that moment. But for Zach, for Levi, it was so much more because it wasn't just a job that was accomplished. It wasn't just a test that was taken. It wasn't just a medical result. It was the release of the guilt and the shame of his sin that had been crushing him because Jesus had welcomed him into friendship and to fellowship. The hymn writer says it this way, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. This is the song of Levi, and he had to celebrate. We learn a little bit more about a celebration, though, because it wasn't open invite for everybody. Levi invited a certain group of people, and we find the second had to for Levi. Levi had to introduce his friends to Jesus. Levi had to introduce his friends to Jesus. A large crowd of tax collectors and gatherers were eating with them, it says. This large banquet, it's Levi having to celebrate, and it's Levi having to invite Jesus so that he could introduce all of his tax collector friends to Jesus. They had to meet him. And the Pharisees, as they observe this, and as they reflect on this, they're scandalized by it. They cannot believe this. They go to Jesus' disciples, and it says in verse 30 that they complained. They grumbled. They threw a fit because of whatever this party was that was going on here, this irreligious activity. What's worse than Jesus calling and spending time with one filthy, rotten, no-good sinner tax collector? It's Jesus spending time having a meal, celebrating at a banquet with a whole host of filthy, no good, repulsive tax collecting sinners. How could he do this? What a scandal. Leon Morris said it this way. They murmured against his disciples with their strict rules of ceremonial purity. It was unthinkable that they would have eaten with people such as Levi and his associates. Some members of such company were bound to be ceremonial unclean, and there was no surer way of contracting defilement than by associating with sinners. Moreover, to eat with this man and his friends meant friendship, full acceptance. Jesus offered friendship and relationship to these filthy, rotten, no-good sinners. And the Pharisees were scandalized. They complained. They murmured. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? 
awful. Question for you and me today. Who is beneath you? Who is beneath us? Who is beneath me? Who is so disgusting or deplorable to us or to you that we can't see their eternal need? Who is it in your life that as you look at them, whether it's uh, things that they think should be taking place in their educational systems or lifestyle choices or political views, who is it that you look at them and, and you're so disgusted by what it is that they think or stand for that you can't see their spiritual and eternal and everlasting need? Because that was the Pharisees' problem. They were so blinded to the realities of spiritual things and eternal realities that they were blinded to their own sin. They couldn't even see their own lostness, their own sinfulness, because they were so buried underneath layers of their self-righteousness that were worthless in standing before God. The question for us today is, who is beneath us? Who is so disgusting or repulsive or, or awful to us that we can't see their eternal spiritual need and their desperate problem of sin. Well, as the passage continues in verses 31 and 32, Jesus is the one who responds. The Pharisees ask the, the disciples, but Jesus steps in and, and takes, the, takes the question. And point C, he clarifies his mission with his response. Jesus clarifies his mission. There's like something that you're not understanding here about Jesus, and Jesus is going to peel back a little bit of the covers, and he's going to allow us to see in and, and get a sense of his heart and his mission. And Jesus says, I, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus didn't come for the healthy. He didn't come to call those who considered themselves righteous. He didn't come to those who thought that they were without need or without sickness, those that were fine on their own or convinced of their own righteousness. Jesus said, I didn't come for you. That's not why I'm here. Because you, in your own mind, you've got it all figured out and you've got it all worked out and there's nothing that you need and you will resist the thing that really you ultimately need. Jesus said, that was not my mission. I came for the sick. I came to call sinners. I came to run into the mix and the mess of life and offer hope and healing and forgiveness. I find it interesting that Jesus didn't just come to hang out with sinners. He came for a very specific reason to sinners. And, and Luke lets us see that here. He says, I'm here to call sinners to repentance. To turn from your ways of sin and bring that sin and brokenness to me and confess it and allow me to wash over it and make it clean. Jesus wasn't just there to, to be a friend and to, and to be a chum. He was to call them to a different way of life. And the people that are lost and broken and sick and recognize that are the ones who are going to be receptive to someone who comes and offers a way out, and a healing hand. If you don't see your sin, you're never going to confess your sin. You're never going to feel or, or sense the need for sin. You're never going to ask for forgiveness if you don't think and consider yourself and see yourself sinful as you really are. Jesus clarifies his mission in that he said, I have come for the sick. I have come to call sinners to repentance. And if you think you've got it all figured out, then good luck with that. But I'm over here, 
And I'm calling those who understand their need. And I'm showing them the way to life. Jesus is developing a reputation here. A couple chapters later, verses 7, uh, chapter 7, verse 34, he's speaking and he says, The Son of Man, referring to himself, came eating and drinking. And you say, He is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was known for his love for those who were lost. Jesus was known for being in the mix and the mess with those who were lost. Jesus was more concerned about the eternal destiny of sinners than he was the ridicule from the self-righteous who were merely focused on appearances. So the question for us today is, are we so concerned about what people think of us that we can't see the eternal need of those around us? Are we more concerned about what others around us think of us? Or are we more concerned about the eternal need of those around us who don't know Jesus? I think a response to Jesus' mission here can go a couple different ways, depending on who you are in your situation this morning. If you're here today or listening online, and you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior and friend, if you think you have no worth, if you think that no one cares, if like Levi, you think that maybe you're beyond hope or that you're too far gone, if the voices in your head scream that God could never love you, he could never forgive you for what you've done, that you could never uh, find his grace and mercy in your life, then hear this. You are at the center of the heart and mission of God. Jesus said, you're the one that I've come for. I'm here for you. Jesus came for one purpose, to seek and to save sinners, to seek and save the lost. He came for the sick. He came to call sinners to repentance. And that's you and that's me. And he demonstrated for us his endless love by dying on a cross to justify and satisfy God's right and just wrath against sin, our sin, your sin, my sin. And then he rose again three days later, conquering death in the grave, proving that he was who he said he was and that he alone has the power to forgive sins. And his invitation to us today, to you today, is come. Turn from your sin and trust me, I will save you. That's his invitation to you today. Today can be the day that you move from death to life. The day... Today can be the day that the burden and the crushing weight of your sin that you've been trying to figure out how to eradicate and to deal with and to overcome can be forgiven by the shed blood of Jesus on the cross if you turn to him in repentance and sin. Today can be that day of your freedom and your liberation. Talk to the friend who brought you. Reach out to the church office. Come and find me after the service. We would love to talk to you about the life that can be yours in Jesus. And if you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus, the question for you is this. Do you share his heart for sinners? Do we share his heart for sinners? Are we quick and willing to run to the mix and the mess of life with the good news of Jesus and his saving power? The Bidi Anya Wheelie says, Our Lord's activities challenge our notions of holiness. If we think of holiness only or primarily as separation, we end up isolating ourselves from the people that we hope to reach. 
If we look at ourselves and say we can't get stained or, or made dirty by those around us who don't know him, then we're going to isolate ourselves from them and we're going to stay away from the people that we've been called to reach. But Jesus, his mission, his example, he ran to the mix and the mess of sinners, bearing with him the good news and the hope that he can save them. Our calling is to be on mission with Jesus, to participate with him, to be engaged in the mix and the mess with him. And as we do that, we need to be careful that we avoid two errors. The first we've alluded to is isolation, that we stay away, that we think, I don't want to be around that, that person or, or be associated with someone like that. It's the, it's the problem of the Pharisees. It's, it's their sinful uh, hearts on display that we've seen in this passage. How in the world, Jesus, could you spend time with them? We've got to fight that air of isolation because holiness and purity are not in contradiction with being in the mix and mess with sinners. Holiness and purity are not in contradiction with being in the mix and mess with sinners. This can be particularly challenging or extra challenging for any of us who have walked with Jesus for an extended period of time. The longer that we walk with Jesus, sometimes it's easier to become more distant or separated or isolated from the mix and the mess around us. The older that we get, it becomes an increasing challenge for us to say, you know what, I'm comfortable in my environment and in the places that I'm in, and I don't want to get in that place. And we need to resist that temptation so that we can be about the heart and mission of Christ in the mix and mess with sinners. The second error that we needed to avoid is assimilation. If we need to be cautious that we're, we don't isolate ourselves from those that God's called us to, to bear witness to and to be ambassadors to, we need to, on the other hand, make sure that we're not engaging in a way that leads to assimilation. We're not to join in with them in their lifestyle and in their patterns of living. Because holiness and purity are not optional when being in the mix and the mess with sinners. Holiness and purity are not optional when being in the mix and the mess with sinners. And this can be particularly extra challenging if, if you've recently come out of, of, of life situations and circumstances where you've been engaging in those things. Or particularly challenging if you find yourself particularly vulnerable to temptation in certain areas. Or if you're younger and you're, you've, you're newer to faith or of a younger generation. This can be a particular challenge that I'm going to go and I'm going to be with them because uh, I'm going to show them who Jesus is but never get around to living a distinctive lifestyle that actually stands out. You don't go as a cleansing agent uh, to, to call sinners to repentance as Jesus did, but just to kind of you enjoy being with that group. We've got to be guard against the challenge or the temptation of assimilation. And our engagement needs to be like the engagement of Jesus as he was on mission. And Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. He says, you are my witnesses. You are my ambassadors. We are on mission from Jesus to the watching world to represent him in the mix and the mess and to be change agents, cleansing agents, to go with, with hearts that have been transformed by Jesus, a high potency relationship with Jesus where we're in proximity with others where they can see and hear and taste and touch and, and experience a relationship with Jesus. And then we use our lips with communication that expresses the hope that Jesus offers so that our impact can be significant. 
So here's some encouragement for us as we seek to engage. First, be close to Jesus. If we're going to be engaged with people who don't know him, it's important and imperative from our side, from our hearts, that we are close to Jesus so that we go with him, bearing a clear and accurate representation of who he is. Number two, know your vulnerabilities and avoid temptation. Know your vulnerabilities and avoid temptation. Know where you're weak. Know where your weaknesses are. Know where you might be prone to be swept into sin rather than to stand as a, as a change agent, as a, as a, as a, a voice uh, representing who Jesus is. Avoid temptation. Jesus, as he taught his disciples to pray, said, Father, lead us not into temptation. We should not put ourselves in situations where we know that we're going to struggle and potentially fail. Know your vulnerabilities and avoid temptation so that when you go, you can be a change agent and not one who assimilates. Number three, stay focused on the goal of presenting Jesus to your friends and leading them to him. We can have lots of friends for lots of reasons and, and do lots of things with them, but if they don't know Jesus and we never share with them who Jesus is, we're missing the mark. So stay focused on the goal of presenting Jesus to your friends and leading them to him. Number three, or number four, don't be influenced, but rather winsomely be the influencer through genuine love. Don't be influenced but be the winsome influencer. Number five, don't sin. Holiness and purity are not optional when being in the mix and the mess with sinners. Represent Jesus and his heart through holiness and purity, inviting them to find him as a forgiver of their sins. While Jesus' choice of friends didn't earn him any points with the self-righteous, it did clearly demonstrate his mission and his purpose. He came to the sick and to call sinners to repentance. And as Jesus' friend choice brought scrutiny, in the next section, verses 33 through 39, a section where we discover that Jesus is unparalleled, that uh, a discussion about Jesus and fasting, we'll see that Jesus comes under fire for his religious expression. So first of all, the, the religious leaders didn't like Jesus uh, for who he was hanging out with. He was hanging out with the wrong crowd. In this section, we find that they're, they're quite upset with him and how he expresses his religious behavior. We find that uh, they say to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisee, but, but yours go on eating and drinking. What is this, Jesus? What are you guys up to? Why don't you fast? We fast, we pray all kinds of times. How is it that you can keep on eating and drinking? How is it that you can be having parties and celebrating with people like Levi? What is, it, what is this that you're up to, Jesus? Your religious expressions don't match up. You must be a fraud. You couldn't possibly be a righteous person. Well, Jesus, who perfectly fulfilled the law, would have observed and obeyed any fasting requirements from the Old Testament. It was just that the Pharisees and, and the religious leaders had developed all kinds of additional ways that a, a righteous person, a, a real religious person, a really holy person would fast. They fasted twice a week. They just didn't do the bare minimum. They went above and beyond over and over. Twice a week. And they did it for show. They did it so others would see how holy they were. They missed the heart of it entirely. But nonetheless, they called Jesus out. Why are you eating and drinking? Why aren't you praying and fasting? No spiritual leader 
would be so casual and so irresponsible with their religious behavior. You clearly don't measure up. At the heart of the Pharisee's question is, what is the righteousness that pleases God? What is the righteousness that God accepts? And they had clear ideas of what that meant. They had elaborate systems uh, built beyond uh, the law to ensure that their holiness was evident to everyone and to maintain their power over society. And Jesus didn't make the cut. He cut against their systems and threatened their authority. And if we're honest, that can be a temptation for us as well. Tendency to start with the biblical instruction, with good motives. Here's what the Word of God says, and I want to make sure that I obey that. And then we build a fence around ourselves so that we don't get even close to it. And then we build a bigger fence so that make sure we don't get closer to that. And then we build a bigger fence just to make sure that we don't transgress that line that God has asked us not to transgress. And all of a sudden, we've got this elaborate system Maybe from a good heart. And many for us, sometimes it's good to have additional boundaries because we need them. But the problem with the Pharisees is they built this elaborate system and then expected everyone else to follow them. Otherwise, they were, were, were repugnant and, and sinful. But we've got to be careful with the fences that we build and who we expect to follow them. We end up with all kinds of artificial and dangerous barriers to our faith, to ourselves and to others. Thabiti continues, he goes, the first step in becoming a self-righteous Pharisee is using our personal religious example as a requirement for everyone else to obey. That's a tendency and a temptation maybe for all of us to expect others to do uh, something that we've established as a man-made rule or principle. But that's not who Jesus was, and that's why he got in such hot water. Jesus came demonstrating true righteousness, not self-righteousness, not personal effort, not man-made rules and traditions. Jesus transgressed the man-made forms of righteousness at the same time ushered in an entirely new way. Verses 34 to 39, Jesus presents himself as a new and superior righteousness. Jesus presents himself as the new and superior righteousness. Jesus ushers in an entirely new way. And in his response, he says, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? Jesus says, in response to, why aren't you fasting? Why are you eating and drinking? And Jesus says, I'm bringing in some, something entirely new. The old covenant is passing away. I'm bringing in a new covenant through my blood. All of your man-made rules and all the things that you've done to, to make Judaism and prop it up, uh, the central uh, feature and focus and goal of your faith. I'm bringing in something entirely new. I'm exposing your man-made false religions. And I'm taking all that God has established and instituted in the Old Testament, and I'm bringing in something new. And right now, I'm the bridegroom, and I'm here, and it's a wedding, and it's a celebration, and it's a party, and no one goes to a wedding and says, oh, we can't eat here. It's time to fast. Jesus says the wedding is here. The party is here. I'm the bridegroom. I am present, and we are going to celebrate. No one fasts at a wedding feast, Jesus says. There is joy when you're with the bridegroom. It's a new day. It's a new way. Jesus came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And that's exactly what he did. And he ushers in a new covenant through his blood. 
And he answers the question of what is the righteousness that God accepts? And the righteousness that God accepts is not our own righteousness, not our own efforts, but it's the righteousness of Christ. And the righteousness of Christ can be ours through our repentance and faith. Jesus offers and initiates a new and superior righteousness, and the Pharisees cannot grasp it. And that's the essence of verses 36 through the end of our section here today, verse 39. Jesus gives a couple examples that the new way, what he's ushering in, this new and superior righteousness, is altogether different than the old way. And they don't go together. They can't be mixed. They can't be put together. They're completely distinct and separate. You can't have them both at the same time. It's one or the other. You don't destroy a new garment to to cut out a piece to patch an old garment because you're going to ruin both. You don't put new wine in an old wineskin because you're going to ruin both. The old way of Judaism, the old structures and systems could not contain the new way of Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm bringing a new and superior righteousness. And it's my righteousness. And those of you who are sick and those of you who are sinners, I offer it to you free of charge if you come to me in repentance and faith. And Levi was example 1A. Verse 39 is interesting. He finishes it up saying, No one after drinking the old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. The ESV says the old is good. Jesus is essentially calling out the hearts of the Pharisees and their response and their attitude, saying, Hey, we don't want anything to do with you, Jesus. I'm fine with what I've got. The Pharisees are resisting the new opportunity and the new uh, invitation from Jesus to a new and superior righteousness because they're satisfied in their own. And they're going to miss out on the glories of what Jesus has to offer as Jesus presents himself as the new and superior righteousness. A couple questions for us as we examine our own hearts in regard to this. What are we most focused on? What are we more focused on? Number one, man-made fences or biblical fences? So we ask these questions of ourselves. It kind of gives us a, a gauge of where we are at, where our hearts might be. What are you more focused on, the personal or religious tradition or a life-giving relationship with Jesus? Others' behaviors or your own heart? More focused on externals or internals? More focused on self-righteousness or reliance on Christ's righteousness? More focused on comparing ourselves with others or comparing ourselves to Jesus? More focused on our own efforts or dependency on the power of the Holy Spirit available to work within us? Jesus brought a new and superior righteousness. He separates himself from the religious leaders, a reality that will increasingly be obvious in chapters that follow. His friends and his religious expressions didn't pass their standards, but they revealed a true righteousness, his righteousness, and demonstrate that there is joy when you are close to Jesus because you have experienced and walked into the new reality of having sins forgiven and that weight that was crushing released. Octavius Winslow, a prominent 19th century preacher in American England, said it this way, the religion of Christ is a religion of joy. 
Christ came to take away our sins, to roll off our curse, to unbind our chains, to open up our prison house, to cancel our debt, in a word to give us the oil of joy for mourning and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Is this not joy? Where can we find so joy, a joy so real, so deep, so pure, so lasting? There is every element of joy, deep, ecstatic, satisfying, sanctifying joy in the gospel of Christ. And that is the rejoicing reality of Levi and everyone who comes to faith in Jesus, recognizing that they were sick and they've met the Savior. I hope that that's your story. I hope that that's your testimony. I hope that that's the song of your heart this morning. Because we see in these passages that Jesus was far more concerned about what his father thought of him than what the self-righteous people thought around him. He was far more concerned about the spiritual needs of sinners than his comfort, than his fame, than his reputation among those around him. He ran into the mix and the mess of life to seek and to save the lost, sparing nothing, giving everything, so that you and I can know, come to know the transcendent joy of having our sins forgiven and being close to him in this life and in the life to come. Jesus' mission was and is to call sinners to repentance so they can experience life in him. The question for us today is how have you responded to his call? And are you on mission with him? In a minute, we're going to sing a song. I think it's Levi's song. It's a song of all who've come to faith in Jesus who've recognized that they've been saved of an infinite debt by an infinitely loving Savior. And I hope that as we sing it, you raise your voices and join in with Levi as we praise the name and celebrate the Savior who saved us. God in heaven, we lift you high. I pray that your word here today would challenge us and motivate us, that we would run to the mix and mess of sinners around us, proclaiming that you and you alone are the Savior, that we live with joy knowing that our sins have been forgiven and that we have been set free and that we live with a confident hope and expectation that one day we will be in your presence and all that is wrong will be finally made right. And that you have invited us, called us, commanded us into your mission to be your witnesses and your ambassadors here and now. I pray that you would use us as such for your glory and that we would see through our lives and through the ministries of this church, people coming to the saving faith of the one who loved him, loved us, and gave himself for us. In Jesus' name, amen.